Do you invest in ETFs? Whether you're thinking, what in the world is an ETF? Or you're looking for the next opportunity to add to your portfolio. GlobalX has you covered. From big tech to bonds and bars of gold, GlobalX offers a wide range of exchange-traded funds. Go beyond ordinary with GlobalX ETFs. Visit globalxetfs.com.au. That's globalxetfs.com.au. Are you thinking about starting your wealth-creating journey but not sure where to put your hard-earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. Drew, welcome to this very special episode of the Australian Investors Podcast. We always do the exciting stuff in the lead up to Christmas, don't we? When we're most busy. Yeah. Yes, we do indeed. Uh, Bill Mitchell, how are you doing? Very well, thank you. It's good to have you in the studio. Thanks for having me. Very happy We've to be here. We've had a lot of emails to get Bill in this week, haven't yes. we? It was almost <laughs> a year in the waiting. <laughs> well, it's been a tricky period, eh? Yeah. <laughs> uh, Bill, for folks that maybe aren't familiar with your role or how you spend your days now, we know that uh, you were in Japan recently and you spend a lot of time there. Um, can you tell us, just just fill us in like the kind of the elevator pitch, what do you do uh, today? How do you spend your time? In front of a computer. <laughs> uh, and behind a bass guitar. Uh, yeah. Electric guitar, six string. Um, well, I mean, I'm a professor of economics and I have appointments at uh, uh, University of Newcastle. I've been there for many years. Um, I also have a, a position uh, uh, called Docent Professor of Global Political Economy at University of Helsinki, where I'm about to go to. Hmm. So I go there every year for a little while. And I also have a, a, a guest professor position at Kyoto University where I spend two to three months a year. Hmm. Is there something in common between those three cities? Is there, they all seem quite progressive, maybe policy-wise? Uh, maybe not. I don't nowhere. think Newcastle's very progressive <laughs> anymore. Newcastle's been taken over by property developers and, uh, yeah. and <laughs> dubious decisions by local government. Uh, Helsinki is the progressive city in Europe. Yeah. Um, it's, it's an interesting city because, uh, you know, from, from my end, I'm, I've written a lot of, the reason I got that job was because I've written a lot about Europe. Obviously, I've studied Europe. I've written books about it and uh, spent a lot of time in Europe. Uh, and, you know, from my perspective, I th- I see uh, golden arches there, you know, it's just laid on with public infrastructure, et cetera, but they tell me that they're suffering under austerity and and so, you know, it's all relative, isn't it? The the shift over the last, since they joined the Eurozone has been significantly negative for them. I can't see it as much as I can. 
Mm. And Kyoto is, uh, well, it's the old capital and, uh, uh, you know, the, people talk about Kyoto culture and uh, Osaka culture, the Kantian culture. And uh, I mean, I even speak dialect now. It's, ridic <laughs> it's ridiculous. I didn't even, I was in Tokyo the other day uh, doing a TV program and uh, this guy said to me, uh, he said, where'd you pick up all that dialect? <laughs> and so, you know, I don't even, didn't even know I was, I was using. How long have you been uh Professor or docent professor there? Where? In Kyoto? A few years. Oh, that was Helsinki, yeah. Yeah, Helsinki, yeah. I've, I've been there several years, Kyoto a few years, and uh, that's an, I've got a really good relationship there. The the guy that sort of attracted me there was Shinzo Abe's chief. Abenomics. Oh, his, yeah. His chief advisor, and he fell out with the Liberal Democratic government, Shinzo Abe's government, and quit went back to his job at Kyoto be over sales tax increases. So every now and then the Japanese government gets a bit paranoid about the size of their deficit. <laughs> and uh, American-trained PhD economists tell them they've got to cut back and so they've been put, they put up the sales tax. That's their big austerity move. And every time they put up the sales tax, boom, 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 there's a GDP collapses. Yeah. And it's a very interesting phenomenon because, say, if you look at what happened in Australia when we put up, introduced the GST in 2000, there was no significant downturn in household consumption, even though there was a 10% high. So a jump in prices and yeah. everything continued on. Yeah. But in Japan, when they put it up 2%, there's a major collapse in household spending. And the difference is that Australians in that period went wild with their credit cards. You know, we went yeah. from what, 65% household debt to disposable income to what is it now, 195 or something. Whereas, it was Costello era, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. Whereas, whereas um, the Japanese households will not borrow. So they, Even though rates are so low? No. <laughs> the, the, well, it's just a culture. It's, yeah. it's sort of the same culture my parents had in the 1950s and 60s, you know, that you don't borrow. Hmm. Don't yeah. spend beyond your means or yeah. if well, prices man, are going to be the same next week, why would you bring forward your purchase? Yeah. I mean, my old man used to say, if you can't pay cash, you don't have it. That was that was his, that was that era. And the Japanese are still, I won't use the word stuck, they're still in that that type of uh, approach, which I've, I think is more sensible. And the, well, so much of ours is driven by speculation, isn't it? That, that property in particular will always go up or yeah. shares will go up 10% every year. or and, and a sort of false optimism. I think that uh, Australia, countries like Australia are always on the precipice of uh, major disaster if 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 house if casual working out because we've got a lot of dependency on the second money winner, typically the woman, yeah, uh, getting casual hours, and uh, if those casual hours disappear, you you have people out at Cranbourne with the big houses and the mm. big boats there. They go from having that semblance of wealth to bankruptcy. Yeah. Mm, very quickly. And that's been the change in Australia over the last 30 years. You've got that sort of real 
precipice mm. that looks like wealth, looks like security, and it's it's it'll just vanish. Mm. All the leverage but, that's embedded in yeah, the household budgets. That's that's the point, and and the leverage that's dependent on things that are that are sensitive to economic change, like casual hours. Mm. That's the point. Mm. And when did you start reading? Bill's work was it when I annoyed you with? No, it would have been years ago. <laughs> I, remember what, I think it was when everyone, like the debt ceiling, just kept twenty being brought 18, up in nineteen. Yeah, 20, probably a little yeah. bit earlier. And I remember seeing interviews with Warren as well. And Mosler, Mosler, yeah, 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 and the Bloomberg interviews repeated about you know. QE, how is it sustainable? And it's needed to discover more. And none of it made sense. None like, of it, why, yeah. why is what they're saying is supposed, supposed to happen not happening? Yeah, everyone's, and you, you know. hear that a lot, Bill. I had someone come up to me at an event the other day and they said, uh, you know, the whole system's rigged, it's going to explode. You've seen the, the, the debt levels. And I'm just thinking, this doesn't make sense. Money printing is inflationary. Yeah. With, yeah. <laughs> After years of no inflation. Yeah. So I, it just couldn't, I just couldn't reconcile it because I very baseline level of economics <laughs> at school. To be sure, even though I studied finance, um, but I just I couldn't reconcile that. So maybe um, this is actually just a really good segue. We just can talk generally how you introduce the, the the topic of MMT. Imagine that you're talking to someone, as we mentioned off air, that's not necessarily a trained economist, hasn't been to finance school. How do you explain uh, the principles and how you came to it? Well, that's a separate question to, <laughs> yeah. to, to what it is. Yeah. Um, I mean, I came to it when I was sitting one day in as much as you can point to <clears throat> an event. I was sitting one day in the middle of winter in the in Melbourne University. I was doing my fourth year. Uh, you had to do six units or something plus a thesis and I was, one of my units was agricultural economics. And uh, it was a very cold day, and those lecture theatres used to be really freezing. I told you it was a good storyteller. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> it used to be really freezing. And uh, um, the topic of the lecture of that day was the wool price stabilisation scheme. Hmm. And that was a scheme the Australian government ran under pressure from the rural lobby to stabilise incomes for uh, sheep uh, wool producers uh, because hmm. they were previous to that boom and bust, you know, they'd, mm. they'd, they'd get the, the market, the market force. Yeah, they'd get the Merck one year and then they'd have to, <laughs> then they'd have to sell it next year or mm. go into bigger debt. And so the government agreed that they would, um, they would uh, intervene in the market uh, to set the, to stabilise the price, to stabilise incomes. And what that meant was that they would buy, if there was excess supply of wool into the market on any particular uh, auction, which would, if the market was left, it would drive the price down. Uh, the government would uh, buy that up. Sounds familiar. Yeah, mm. and, <laughs> and if the, there was an excess demand, the government would sell it. And so all around our capital cities were those big old uh, red brick buildings, which are now gentrified apartment blocks. Mm, very expensive. It's probably <laughs> in uh, Richmond, Richmond, Richmond uh, yeah. Abbotsford, down there. There's all those old big multi-storey brick buildings, mm. well, they were the wool stores and that's where the government used to store the wool and they'd buy and sell out of that. And, you know, I wasn't so much interested and this was late 1970s when unemployment had started to rise and uh, 
the mainstream of my profession was uh, saying, oh, there's nothing the government can do about it. It was the beginning of sort of what we started to call in those days economic rationalism, uh, which has broadened into sort of neoliberalism. It's like Keynesian yeah. or not. No, What's no, that? No, not Keynesian. No, not no. Keynesian. Keynesian economics had been abandoned or, by yeah. then. Yeah. So we had, we you know, that was that era. Unemployment was rising. I was... A progressive thinker, I thought, on on the left of the spectrum, and I wanted to come up with ideas that could, uh, and and inflation was high enough because mm. it was around the uh, first OPEC oil crisis shock in October '73 had massive effects, and then the second one came along around about that time, late '70s. So I wanted to work out how you could deal with inflation but not create unemployment. That, that mm. was, that was on my mind constantly. Well, it doesn't make sense. It has to be a trade-off, does it? Why? Well, the, the the mainstream paradigm was that there had to be a trade-off. That yeah. you had to. That was the beginning mm. of. That was the period where we abandoned the concept that the government would create full employment. That's when we went to inflation first. We had to deal with inflation, and uh, and unemployment would be the So we a policy tool rather than a policy target. Because up until then, the target was that, you know, the unemployment had to stay below 2% and federal government would lose, would be in danger of losing office if it went above 2%, 2% you know, 1961 <laughs> election. Robert Menzies nearly lost the one by one seat because unemployment was 2.1%. <laughs> was during the credit squeeze in 1961. Anyway... Back to the back to the story. <laughs> I see the parallel. It's a very no, parallel. Yeah, it works. makes complete sense. Back to the story. The, uh, the so I wasn't so much interested in wool. I was much more interested in unemployment. And so the wool, what I conceived from the wool price stabilisation scheme, that the government could, through its spending decisions, set a price for anything for whatever just it wanted, about, what yeah. It, yeah. And so. It could, if, and and the model that I had in my mind was it could set a price for uh, uh, for labour, in other words, control inflationary spirals coming from the labour market, if it ran the, a wool price stabilisation scheme for for workers, mm. in other words, when there's an excess supply, that's when the private sector's laying off workers, the government could uh, buy those at a fixed price, and. Uh, mm. And when the private sector was starting to expand again, they could just start, because the fixed price would be below the wage structure in the private sector, the the private sector employers could easily bid them back again. And and so if you think about it, if you've got in an in inflationary period and you've got one buyer buying at a fixed price, well, then that's ultimately going to reduce inflationary pressures. Mm. And and in other words, I, I, I accepted that the government had to tighten policy with, when there was inflation, but instead of creating unemployment, they could create employment at a fixed price and transfer workers from an inflating sector to a fixed price sector. So that was the start in my thinking of that. And, and, and I, it was quite clear to me that uh, after August 1971, when we got off the fixed exchange rate system, the Bretton Woods system, we didn't get off it until the mid eighties, but uh, it was mostly a, a light managed float up until the mid eighties from the early seventies. And um, it was quite clear to me that uh, the government really 
the stuff we were learning in economics about the government being financially constrained was just complete garbage. How could it be financially constrained when you open your wallet and it was their money? <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't my They're printing it. It wasn't my money. Well, you know, were they printing it? Or, I, that was or I had minting it. <laughs> they were. Well, subsequent inquiry knows that they type numbers into bank yeah. accounts. But, <laughs> That's the next step. But yeah, that that. That came later, but but it was quite clear that it was their money, not my money. And so, when uh, when politicians would go start raving on about taxpayers this and taxpayers that, well, it was quite clear to me that taxpayers didn't fund anything. Do you blame Thatcher for that? That was more recent. Uh, or more the, or the more recent uh, well, policy I really, austerity. See, I really blame the British Labor Party for yeah. that. The Callaghan. Callaghan period, Dennis Healy was the Chancellor. It was like comparisons of a government balance sheet to mm. a, a normal balance sheet. Household balance sheet, yeah. yeah. And, and uh, this idea that, you know, the government that issues its own currency could not have it. How mm. could that be? Now, all the stuff about the banking of MMT, that came later with Warren because that was his ballpark. Yeah. But, but yeah, it was clear to me that the government wasn't financially constrained. And it was clear to me that uh, that it could set a price through its buying program, depending on how they designed that. So the, the question is like always, like if we go to that bank accounts, if we log into <laughs> that, look at that NAB or something, <laughs> and we look at it and we can see, if, unless we go into a deficit, like unless we go into credit, we have a fixed amount of money that we can spend as a household budget. But the government it prints the money, or not prints, but adds the numbers to the bank account. So in theory, it could stimulate if it wanted to. Would it would it be fair to say almost unlimited capacity to stimulate? Well, you well, saw it during the pandemic where apparently we couldn't spend an extra five billion a year, but we could spend a hundred billion in three weeks. Yeah, I answered the question yeah. for you. But, um, yeah. Well, I mean, Jimi Hendrix in in Voodoo Child <laughs> talks about talks about the outskirts of infinity. Yeah, <laughs> and that's that's the financial capacity of government mm. outskirts of infinity, infinity minus one cent, mm. given you can't <laughs> get to infinity, and so when you once you once you cross that line and understand that, then obviously the question is well. Are there constraints on governments? And well, of course there are. They can buy whatever's for sale. But with their currency, but that's all. And if they try to compete in the market at market prices for resources that are not available that are currently being used, well, then there will be inflationary pressures from the demand side. That's obvious. Mm. And 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 in, in and once you understand that, then you start to say, okay, well, how does it garner resources if the if they're already fully used, well, then you then you. So the government creates inflation. Well, all spending <laughs> all all spending creates inflationary risk. Yeah. All spending, whether it's household spending, whether it's 
business investment, whether it's exported over uh, greater than imports or whether it's government spending, it's all- Because you're bidding for the same resource or the scarce yeah, resources. You bid, you're bidding at market prices for, for a resource that might be already used. That's why the, OS, is it the OECD came out and said the fiscal spend on infrastructure is kind of crowding out the private sector, whether that's housing construction on the other well, side. Well, that crowding out in the real resource sense, not the financial sense, yeah, in yeah. the real resource mm. sense. And so then once you get to that point, then the next step is very exciting because you say, well, how can the government actually resource itself? In other words, have a public sector. How does it do that without creating inflation? Well, it does it by depriving us, the non-government sector, of the use of those resources. How does it do that? Well, it's got to create unemployed resources. How does it do that? Taxation. Tax. Mm. Because taxation reduces our disposable income, which means that we can't buy as many resource access to resource uses we might if we had zero taxation. And what are those resources going to do? Well, they're going to sit idle unless they, they're brought back into productive use through government spending. Is that why we put in like mineral resources rent tax or is that more? Well, there's, there, there, <laughs> there, in, in modern monetary theory, obviously, we, we embrace some of the uses of tax, purposes of Super taxation or, yeah. of of mainstream. I mean, obviously, taxation can be a an allocative measure. So if you want to shift out resource usage, uh, in other words, you want, don't want people to be smoking or drinking too much or you don't want them to be using carbon as much. That, so that's a purpose of taxes. But the other purpose of tax is to free up resources so that the public sector can resource itself. It's got nothing to do with providing the mm. public sector with the with the cash in which it needs to spend, because it's got infinity minus one. It's to stop us spending. Now, once you've once you've crossed that line, then you're into MMT world, and you've got a totally different perspective on the on the on the my world. My future employer, I think, too. Comes into question. What's that? <laughs> the RBA. We joke about <laughs> becoming a future board member of the RBA. Yeah, but that's where yeah, the, the the monetary side of MMT comes in. Yeah, you've got a totally different perception of what the constraints on government are. The constraints on government are rural resources, not financial resources. Yeah. That's so. So then, then you, in the political, in the sort of political sphere. The sort of questions that we should be asking our politicians would they change if you've got an MMT understanding? Because when a politician says, "Oh, we can't afford to," uh, unemployment's a market phenomenon. We can't, you know, that's we can't afford to provide jobs. Well, you know, then the politicians not being truthful. Of course, they can. They just don't want to. So unemployment becomes a political choice, not a financial necessity. Are there people in Australia that understand it, you think, in government, but whether they're able to I, I think execute that, it? I think there are some. And uh, I mean, I talked to- I Was it Guy DeBell studied under you? At yeah, guy, I taught Guy in fourth year at, when, when I taught in Adelaide. Uh, yeah, guy 
Guy, I would say, definitely understands that he was a very bright chap yeah. and, and a great loss to the policy sector, I think. But, uh, yeah, oh, look, there's, I talked to some politicians and... Uh, I think you've said that you can't be seen with <laughs> politicians <laughs> of either side when we've chatted either. Yeah. They don't want to be seen with you. Yeah. Um, and the ones that are the one the the couple of politicians that understand the most are on the liberal side. Yeah, funny enough. So, Bill, my question is: so, say, my understanding has always been that we would effectively entrust the government to exercise judgment of where there is capacity, um, where there is supply, and balance accordingly. Because if you think I've heard it, I heard an interview that you did like eight years ago. I was listening to it on the way in this morning. Uh, in which you talked about basically the idea of people being out of a job is it's devastating for families, it's devastating for households, and ec economic theory and execution should be built around this idea that people can remain employed and they can think positively towards the future and remain productive members of society, right? But I guess if we shift to trusting the government with making these decisions of where taxes are applied and where decisions are made, to stimulate, do we need a different institution within our government to exercise that judgment? Because at the moment we've got fiscal and monetary policy. Do we need a third element to do that? Or is the would a government, say in Australia, be equipped to do that? Is the election cycle too short? And that's what I mean, because they, the, they would optimise for the next four years, that's right? That's a constraint, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, that's one of the... That's one of the arguments that the conservatives use to do what I call depoliticise economic policy. So um, that's one of the reasons why they rave on about central bank independence, <laughs> that you, you push off monetary policy to an unelected, unaccountable body uh, that determines mm. the cost of capital for every business yeah, person and, and <laughs> households in the world, and can devastate low-income mortgage holders Incredibly like they fast. are, like they are now, with what mm. eleven increases, fifty-two yeah. percent increase in average home mortgage monthly mortgage payments. But a cut coming. Don't, don't listen to him. <laughs> I, I, I think it's... Still agrees with me, trust I, me. I think a cut is coming. See? <laughs> what goes up goes down. Eventually. Have you said enough times you're eventually right? We right. know this about economists. That's right. <laughs> no offence. Um, and, you know, I mean, that, that, that depoliticisation is very convenient for guys like Jim Chalmers because he can then say, well, it's not us doing it to you, sorry. Yeah, and we can keep the trigger on fiscal policy on one side if they're yeah. pushing monetary. On the other and side. and and Jim Chalmers can say, oh well, they'll push up interest rates if we do too much, and it's their fault. We'll have to we'll have to cut back. Um, look, my view, my I share the scepticism that people have about the quality of our political class. Mm. Uh, I think that. Uh, over the years, we've tran trans moved, transitioned from people that were really dedicated to public service to careerists. And yes, yeah, so from policy to almost a profession. Yeah, careerists who who are concerned with power rather than public service. Mm. And and that's a real that's a real problem for our democracy. I think. I think that. Uh, uh, 
the the 24-hour news cycle, the 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 controversies are, uh, are are really damaging to our national estate. And so, yeah, I I accept all of that, but it's all we've got. You've got to have a fiscal authority. You've got to have have a monetary authority. Mm. Now, I think it should be merged. I don't think we should have a separate central bank because I, I think monetary policy as practiced is pretty ineffective mm. and it's... Well, we've seen that, haven't we? They've been targeting inflation and they've increased rates 11 times and inflation has still naturally slowed. And well, I mean, the other changed. thing that most people don't really... It's actually reallocating wealth to retire people with capital away from people. There's been there's been a historic redistribution of wealth from low income to and low wealth to high income and high wealth. Yeah, like a lot of capital, yeah, lots of inequality. Yeah, a, 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 an almost obscene redistribution. But what most people don't understand is that the way monetary, monetary policy isn't clearly, interest rate rises aren't clearly anti-inflationary. That's it. We don't know if it's a yeah. gas pedal or a brake pedal, right? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm on the uh, petrol pedal, the gas yeah. pedal. I think you can see what's, drive, what's driving the CPI at the moment. Well, rents. Well, why are rents going up? Yeah, there's a shortage of housing and that reflects a poor investment decisions over many years of state and federal governments in social mm. housing particularly. But but given that, rising interest rates, you're going to predict always that rents are going to go up because the landlords are going to pass them on. Mm. Yeah. And so you get interest rate rises are actually inflationary. And moreover, you know, uh, the impact on... Uh, businesses with overdrafts for their working capital, you know, thirty-day credit type arrangements with their suppliers. Well, they're going to, they're going to, anyone who's got price-setting power is going to pass on those interest rate payments. Mm. So, so you, it's it's unclear that, that that interest rate rises and the whole conduct of monetary policy is actually fit for its purpose. That's the. So I would just forget that, and and fiscal policy is much more direct and much more fit for counter-stabilising mm. spending fluctuations. Now the question then is, well, who who decides fiscal policy? Well, that's the that's the problem. That uh, I don't think you know these fiscal boards that have emerged in Europe, and and you know Chalmers would love to have one here where you where you. Uh, fill a room up with mainstream economists uh, to, to determine fiscal policy, well, that's not going to work, uh, in my view, to advance societal well-being because mainstream econ- economics is uh, is not fit for purpose. They'll come to a consensus pretty quickly. They'll come, <laughs> they'll come to... It's an annualised rate there too. <laughs> they'll come to a consensus immediately and because of the homogeneity of the debate and, and, and that's the problem. And uh, so, you know, I think... I think the challenge for citizens is that we've got to improve our political class, mm. and uh, uh, well, the the only way you really can do that is to get involved in branch politics and local community organisations, and and in a way, I you know the the teals are a reflection in Australia of that sort of mm. way in which community pressure. Beginning with climate issues, that's the teals were all mm, quite that, narrow. Yeah, that's what motivated their 
their rise. But th that's the only way we're going to improve the political class. So we've constantly got this question that pops up even in our Q&A every week, which is that the US government's going to default. Yeah. <laughs> or the Australian yeah. government's going to default. Like, well, how do we have trillion, however many trillion? I don't even want to see the number in the US. And I know in Stephanie Carlton's book, she talked about how politicians tend to use every single digit of a number when they're putting it into something because it scares people yeah. and it helps them uh, helps them make um, you know harsh decisions. But you're saying governments can't default, or my, or if they issue their own currencies, those governments, governments will government. never default and. Uh, Never. So buy. No, that's not a buy. <laughs> no, not investment advice. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll never default. And uh, it's, it's just a reflection of the stupidity of the, of the commentator who ever raises that question. Of course, you know, most of the commentators that do raise that question know damn well that they won't default. They're just using it as a, uh, a, a scare tactic to advance their own ag agendas because they know that people out in real world land aren't very well versed in economics, unfortunately, mm. and get scared easily because it sounds catastrophic. It will never happen. It can't happen. I mean- Is that the connection to the wool sheds? Central it, bank policy? Or is it the gold standard? What's the gold <laughs> So you know how we had uh, gold as the currency? Because we only had a finite supply in theory. Yeah, which blew up. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the gold, gold, gold was never the gold standard. wasn't Gold wasn't the currency. I mean, if you're talking about the Bretton Woods system yeah. after the Second World War, the, the system was that uh, they they believed that the world had found all the gold. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so they thought that gold was going to be relatively stable. Yeah. In supply. So they set the US dollar against, uh, calibrated that $30, a, uh, 30 US dollars an ounce of gold. And then they set all the other currencies against the, the US dollar. That was the Bretton Woods system. The, the problem was it was totally unsustainable. Mm. You could never go back to that. But why are you talking about that? <laughs> well, just in terms I of the- I was peering the other way around the kind of um, buyer of a last resort, essentially, where, where people don't necessarily, you talk about the RBA not being independent and people don't, most people, as you said, don't understand that. How is the RBA not independent and how does the government keep issuing bonds? Who's going to buy them if we've got so much debt? Well, they don't even need to issue bonds. That's that's, they just, that's the next step in our progress towards intellectual honesty. The government could just stop issuing. Because we've got the Treasury Department that sits between. Yeah. Well, the bond is issued by the Australian Office of Financial yeah. Management, which is a division of Treasury. Yeah. Uh, look, people should realise that the government doesn't have to issue debt. The debt doesn't finance the government spending. That the, 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 the government spends every hour of the business day typing, instructing the Department of Treasury tells finance what's got to be procured. Department of Finance tells the central bank, reserve bank, type some numbers in, please. Here they come. <laughs> and zunk, there they go. And, and if the type is put in an extra zero, well, government spending would be an extra zero bigger, which might be quite large. <laughs> But it wouldn't matter. And this mm. is why what happened during the pandemic and through every crisis since. Yeah. And at the bottom, at the center of the bottom, and the market stopped falling, 
when the central bank stepped in. Yeah, I mean, what, in different uh, ways. During the pandemic, the Reserve Bank of Australia bought ninety-five percent of state and territory and federal government debt. Bang. Mm. In other words, government buying its own debt. The Reserve Bank's part of government. It's not separate from government. So it's and you know you get you have this sort of uh, almost like a, you know you could write a pantomime about it. Where, where the right, living in a pantomime, the, well, <laughs> the right pocket of gov- right pocket of government gives a, a bond to the left <laughs> pocket of government. The left pocket of government types in some numbers, and then when the dividend, when the yields have got to be paid each period, the left pocket gives the right pocket some <laughs> some yields. I'm getting confused which pockets <laughs> which. And, and then, of course, when they've got to be paid. He's when, wearing cargo pants. <laughs> when the debt's got to be paid back, they the pockets swap money again. I mean, it's just, it's just nonsensical. And it, but this is where I was going before, is people think there's a finite supply of something. They think there's it not. has to be anchored to something, but it doesn't. No, it's like that pocket's that's po- that pocket goes on for infinity, right? Minus one, and so people liken the outskirts of infinity. Yeah, outskirts minus one. Uh, people think that there is a finite supply, so we can't just keep increasing this, and that's where the politicisation of it comes from, because well, people don't understand that very basic principle. You know, one one analogy I use is: imagine now we're in Victoria today, Melbourne, so it's a football town. Proper football. <laughs> Go the D's. <laughs> Go the D's. <laughs> um, imagine, you know, three minutes into the third quarter, there's an announcement over the PA system. The game has to stop. The scoreboard's run out of points. <laughs> I've heard this one before. Yeah. I like this one. Imagine that. Yeah. Scoreboard's run. The MCG scoreboard, we haven't got any more points to put. The game's got to stop. <laughs> Now, people are going to be walking along after the game desolate because <laughs> the Ds are up beating, beating Collingwood by about 40 points and going, God, why didn't, they, why didn't they allocate more points? Why didn't they, you know, why didn't they save up some points? It's a digital scoreboard. Yeah. <laughs> and, of course, it doesn't know, make sense. Of course, then, no, it's just, it's just absurd that the, they type numbers on – into the scoreboard, or they used to put them up. Yeah, even then they didn't run out. <laughs> no, well, they can't run out, and and it's like it's like uh, the tram tram system suddenly announcing over all the booths we've run out of tickets today. <laughs> now they might run out of capacity to hold people in the trams, but they can't ever run out of tickets. Mm. And the government might run out of capacity of real resources to buy. But it can never run out of dollars, ever. Can type as many as they like. And I mean, during the pandemic, during the GFC, we should have realised it. You know, trillions of dollars were spent in America, just bang, to save the whole financial system. Bang, it just went out. Mm. Then we talked about 10 years of QE and the problems that that caused is what people talked about, not saying that it did. Well, they don't even understand what QE is. Yeah. Mm. That's 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 the problem of QE. They they thought it was giving the banks money to lend. The banks don't need money to lend. Mm. Ba- the banks don't lend their reserves. The reserves never get lent out unless they lend them overnight on the interbank market. But mm. and why does Japan stand out so much? I know you, you've done a lot of work there. Well, I mean, as I said to you off the camera, we've we've 
had this very economists hanker for in experiments because unlike uh, the physical sciences, we don't have control over our research. In a sense, we don't have control mm. groups that we can benchmark off. And so the the beauty of the current period, which um, you really shouldn't talk about beauty in terms of what, <laughs> what the Reserve Bank's been doing, that's ugly, but, <laughs> but um, we've had an experiment in the world over the last two years. So when the Federal Reserve started in America, started raising interest rates, all the other central banks went lockstep like, like morons and started to push up interest rates. The Bank of Japan hasn't changed its negative rate at all, not at all. And if you read, you know, even yesterday they put out a statement on monetary policy where they reaffirmed their view that inflation's coming down. It was always driven by supply factors that interest rates weren't able to really get to. So, you know, how, how did pushing up interest rates make people less sick from COVID so they could work harder and supply more goods and services? How did they get the ships back into the right ports? How did they stop Putin in Ukraine? How did they? How did OPEC? Uh, how did interest rate rises stop OPEC uh, profit gouging by withdrawing supply? Well, clearly they didn't. Interest rates were were not the right tool mm. to deal with the inflationary pressures. And you know, in two thousand and twenty-one, I went out on the on a limb, as I mostly do, <laughs> and I predicted this inflation would be relatively short-lived. It was nothing like the nineteen seventies inflation. Transitory. Not necessarily transitory, just a matter of time. No, I use the, tra- mm. the word transitory, but I was careful to say that transitory doesn't necessarily mean six months or twelve. Have months. a time dimension to yeah. it. It just means that the Im- impulse factors were going to abate. It wasn't a secular; it was a cyclical. Mm. Yeah, yeah. You, you weren't you weren't going to get any secondary propagation things like we had in the seventies with the wage price pressures. Mm. Uh, Bank of Japan's run the course. The financial markets have probably lost quite a bit of money betting against the <laughs> Japanese government bond, you know, the so-called uh, sh- short selling of the 10-year bond mm. because they predicted that the bank the bank would relent and follow suit and push up rates, which would push, push up yields in the bond market, which would push down prices. And so if they went short, they could make money. They've lost. They consistently lose, and and you know I, I reckon it'd be really. Enjo- I know people in the Bank of Japan. I reckon they would have a really enjoyable <laughs> job because there's there's non pecuniary aspects. Laughing at these these fools mm. in the financial markets who think that they know better than the bank mm. and can outbid the bank. They can't. Mm. Bill, this is a uh, a great foray into a topic that you've been exploring for so many years. We'll include a heap of resources in the in the podcast to learn more about you, to thank you. To get your book, books, I should say, um, the Macroeconomics book that you've put out, which you co-authored. Um, it's available as links on your website as well. Yeah. Blog. Um, so much that you do. 
Uh, we really do appreciate you taking some time to to share this with us. I remember a few years ago when we first started talking about MMT, I'm like, who can I get in? Um, and I'm just so glad that we can finally have a chance to meet in person. Well, one of the founders is in Australia. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. So um, once again, thanks for, for chatting with Drew and I. More than welcome. Thank you. Take thanks, care. Bill. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest... Now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says Invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.